God's kingdom, which should motivate faithfulness in the present. And that's what the book of Zechariah is all about. Yeah, I'm confused too. Uh, you've probably seen this, especially if you happen to frequent Pinterest, but, um, which I don't, but, it's just, but a phenomenon has happened in our culture where people put great ideas and they post them on Pinterest and then people try to replicate them and then they, ha- they show what they've done and they've been called Pintrocities. And it's, it's somebody says, here's what it was supposed to be, here's, here's what I tried to do, and then they use the phrase, nailed it, to sarcastically show that. And if you've ever seen it, you've seen that there are some examples like this. You see, I saw a little lamb cake on Pinterest. Nailed it. <laughs> Skinned cat. Saw a hedgehog cake on Pinterest. Nailed it. Got an idea for a holiday baby card. Nailed it. Minion cake. Nailed it. Melted crayon art. There it is. Cookie Monster cupcakes. What a great idea. Nailed it. Pumpkin patch baby pick. And there it is. Little mermaid. Elmo. Cute hot dog wrap. Cake in the shape of your favorite pop star, and it's called, been called Burn Victim Bieber. Sometimes there's a vision for something, and then sometimes the reality just looks really, really, really different. Now, there, that, that parallel has been true from the beginning of human history because our maker, our God, yours and mine, the one and only creator of the universe, established something where he said, I got a vision. I got something I want to do. I want, I want others to be able to benefit from who I am. And so I've got this picture of a kingdom that I'm going to establish. And that kingdom is going to have subjects, and I'm going to be the source of its life. I'm going to provide for it. There's going to be worship. People are going to thrive in it. They're going to reflect my glory. It is going to be a, a picture that goes on for eternity. We came in and immediately screwed that up because our first father took another path. And we've been paying the price for that ever since. And we marred that picture. It is crumbling. Our world is devolving, not evolving. We are taking steps further and further away from the original picture. But there's something that is true, that's been true from the very beginning of that. And that is a very good God who loves us and ha- will not give up on us to make a decision. And he said, I'm not, I'm not going to fail in this. So all of human history and We've been in a, a, a series here, the whole Route 66, the, all the books of the Bible, taking one at a time, flybys lo- looking at them and saying, what do they, how do they contribute to the picture? What has been established is there is really one story undergirding it. It's one primary story, and it is God restoring that picture until it's completed. I suggested to you that a way to say that would be that the theme of all of the Bible, the Old Testament and the New Testament combined, is the making and redeeming of God's kingdom. You and I are part of that. We're players in it. And make no mistake, God intends to complete the vision. He's going to do that. He's going to restore that. Now, the book of Zechariah comes in in the middle of this story, and it's got a significant part of that story. 
But remember that it's one story. And the, and the prophet Zechariah is going to offer some perspective. Perspective on the, what the future is going to look like. He's going to remind the people, them and us, this is going somewhere. God is going to complete this vision. But he's also, <laughs> am I done? Is that, am I done? That's it. Just, just, you get off. You get, bring the next guy in. Two guys, thank you. Zechariah, see, you've completely thrown me off. He's going to come and say, God, we're going to paint the picture and show you that it's coming. But understand that God has stuff for you to do in the middle of it. If you remember, I gave you some suggested thoughts about how every part of, there's component parts of this story. And there's a receptivity piece of that. He's going to focus on the part of, God's going to build his kingdom. But part of what he wants to do is he needs you to get ready for that. He needs to ask you whether you're at a position where you are, are a willing participant in that. So he's, he's gives word, a collective word for the world, and then he's got individual things. Now, there are a handful of lessons that we're just going to fly by and take a look at them. And I invite you to take a look in your own copy, if you have one, of the book of Zechariah. Second to last book of the Old Testament. And uh, you can take a look there. And I'm going to go several places in it. I'm going to start chapter 7. But as you get there, let me just kind of remind you what you saw. That this is near the end of the 70-year Babylonian captivity. It's probably between 520-517 B.C., Zechariah is a contemporary of Haggai, who we looked at last week. And, and like we heard, he's being asked this question through this book. So, is it happening yet? We've been through this 70 years, so okay, is it, is it time? Same question Jesus got asked, by the way. Is, are you going to establish the kingdom? Are we getting to the end? Is this it? Can we do this? How about we get on with it? And God is going to answer that by saying, hang on a second, we're going to get there. But there's some important parts of things we need to address first to, in order to get there. And there are two principles in this story. You heard him, Joshua, high priest, the religious leader, Zerubbabel, who's more of the governor under the Persian king there, the political leader. And they're going to get talked about a lot. And let, by the way, just an aside, you've got those kinds of leaders that are foretellers of the one who's eventually going to lead the entire restored kingdom. And they're, all those roles, all those officers are going to get combined in one person. God says, there's somebody who's coming who's going to be both, both of, he's going to be actually three, a prophet, he's going to be a priest, and he's going to be a king. All combined. It's going to be God himself in flesh. It's going to be Yeshua, the rescuer, Jesus, the son of God, who's coming. But in the meantime, he's going to talk to these guys representing that system and say, Let's answer the question. God, are you finally going to bring about your rightful kingdom? And God's response is going to be fairly simple, but he's going to say, oh, oh, yeah, oh, I'm going to. I will. But here's my question for you, God says. When are you going to be ready to receive it, that receptivity piece? Are you ready to participate? Are you ready to be a willful follower of the way I've established it? And so he's going to do that by giving a, a series of visions and imagery and prophecies of when he's going to do it, how he's going to do it, what he's going to do. And this, it, some of these, if you read this, and I'd encourage you to read them for yourself. We're not going to take the time today. Some of them are so bizarre and so confusing, and you saw them say that if you look in the little uh, diagram that, they, that our friends at the Bible Project did, you'll see they got, in the part where it says these are bizarre, you'll see in that book, it so confused the guys who wrote this that they misspelled the word Pharaoh in there. If you just, just... They went with the American Pharaoh mix-up. 
Just thought you'd want to know that so you can write them correctly. <laughs> so here's what we're going to do. I want to step back from this for a minute and just think with you about this whole realm of God brings prophets and they come up with these stories and they present these things. And the Bible's full of prophets prophet and prophecies. It has them in the middle. We've got whole sections of prophecy, prophecy on the banners you see there. They're, they're telling these stories about what's happening and what is calling, and, and you see this weird stuff that happens. And you get to the book of Revelation, there's more of them that come. What is the deal with that? What, what is, why are all the prophecies? And if, I mean, I got to tell you honestly, sometimes I get lost and I get kind of bored. I go, I don't know what I'm doing here. I, what, I get, go on and just tell me, tell me straight. Why does God do that? I want to suggest a couple things for you. And first of all, I want to just guide you to think about what, what prophecy is not, the, what, it's, what its purpose is not. Because in our culture, we're kind of geared to do something when we see prophecies, and we, we're geared to try to solve them, aren't we? But prophecies have never been intended. God never intended a pro- prophecies to be a riddle or a puzzle that a handful of really smart people are going to be able to figure out and go, ooh, no one else got it, but we got it. See, people sell books doing that. People, people get following saying, oh, you got special knowledge. You've, but you know what? God never intended his prophecies to be some, a riddle that gets solved. He never intended them to be a science project that you dissect. And you say, look at the little nuance. What's he wearing? What's he saying? What happens then? What's the sequence? What's all that mean? It's not a frog that you get in eighth grade science class. You cut open and look at all the parts and see how they all fit together. That's not the purpose of prophecy. And the, pr- and the purpose is not to give us a detailed play-by-play that says, here's the order it's going to happen in the way it's going to happen in the timing it's going to happen. He sprinkles stuff in there that says certain dates are coming, certain details are in there, but he does not expect you to figure it out or solve it. That's not its purpose. Let me give you an example from the book of Zechariah. You, got, you ready to flip a little bit? Let's, let's go to chapter 9. And you'll see in chapter 9 this statement. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. You read that, right? You, you go, wait a minute, I know that. That was a prophecy that got fulfilled in Matthew 21 when Jesus entered the city of Jerusalem, right? It's one verse in the middle of all kinds of other stuff. We look back and we go, oh, I recognize that. Look at, look at chapter 11, verses 12 and 13. I told them, if you think it best, give me my pay, but if not, keep it. So they paid me 30 pieces of sil- silver, and the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, handsome prince, which they priced me. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. People go, oh, wait, I've heard of 30 pieces of silver before. And that gets evoked in a reference to when Jesus was betrayed. Oh, yeah, it was, th- oh, there's significance. Oh, look, it was kind of foretold, wasn't it? 30 pieces of silver get mentioned. Look at chapter 12, verse 10. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. Oh, yeah, John 19, right? In fact, it says in John 19 that when Jesus was pierced on the cross, that fulfilled a prophecy about him. They will look on the one they have pierced. Chapter 13, verse 7. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who is close to me, declares the Lord. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. And I will turn my hand against the little ones. 
Wait, I've heard that before, right? Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. That also is referenced as, uh, as talking about the Messiah, Jesus. Chapter 14, verse 4 says, On that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, east of Jerusalem, and the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west, forming a great valley with half the mountain moving north and half moving south. We say, oh yeah, no, that's right, I've heard of that. That's what's going to happen in the end times when Jesus comes back to establish his kingdom and the mountain splits. And we go, oh look, there's all kinds of stuff in there. I want you to understand something. And I'm just going to say it this way. I don't think there was a single soul on the planet who figured out in advance which of those verses was going to apply to Jesus and which ones weren't. That wasn't the purpose. You know what God was doing? I'm going to give you a couple of word pictures. But he was, he was establishing some markers that said, when it happens, you're going to be able to look back and see some references and go, oh, this is part of a plan. But we want to reverse engineer everything, right? We want to look at it and go, oh, no, if I go back, I can solve all that. And now maybe I can tell you when Jesus is going to return the next time. When's the next time somebody says he's going to return? Because they figured out the numerology of the Bible and they've got all the predictors in place. There's no one who did it the first time. There were some who could kind of count the 70 weeks and they say there's a general time and they knew we're we're anticipating it. But there was no one who could point to those verses and say, that one's talking about the Messiah and those aren't. It's not my job. It's not your job. And there's no one who's going to do it the next time. That's why Jesus said, no one knows. Oh, it's going to happen. When it happens, part of the coolness of it will be, we'll look back and we'll go, oh, there were markers. Right. How cool is he that he did that? He let us know it was coming, and he gave us markers to recognize when it happened. That was the point. So what the purpose of the prophecy And and if I can suggest this, in the New Testament, the parallel of those prophecies are the parables. They are to basically hide something in plain sight. You ever heard that phrase? People can hide something in plain sight. So that when the markers are there, so that the people who want to recognize it when it happens can see, oh, that's that's what was coming. And the other expression that gets used sometimes is, and I believe this, people see what they want to see. Right? I mean, you see this in culture right now. It happens in politics. People hear what they want to hear. They, they see statistics and they say, see, that reinforces my side. And the other people on the other side of the aisle say, no, no, that right reinforces our side. And like the, like the old expression says, there are three kinds of lies. There are lies, damn lies, and statistics. Mark Twain, they said, said that. And everybody's quoting the same statistics to prove their point, but it's all because they're seeing what they want to see. They're hearing what they want to hear. So Jesus came and said, and they asked him, why do you speak in parables? And he says, basically, I'm going to hide something in plain sight so that people who are already inclined, get this, people who are already inclined to pick it up will be reinforced in their belief of it. But people who are not inclined for it won't even see it at all. Now there was a... Um, a study done by Christopher Chabry and Daniel Simons. They, won, they wound up winning a Nobel Prize in psychology for some of the work, and it started with a study that they, they called selective attention. And they, they were studying human behavior and how observant we are. They came up with a little test. Now, if you've seen this test, you're not allowed to say anything. But if you haven't seen this test, well, either way, take a look. I want you to watch the screen, follow the instructions. It's going to be very quick. Don't say anything if you've seen it. Don't answer anything out loud. 
Are you ready? Pick a screen and see and follow this test. Here we go. Count how many times the player is wearing white past the basketball. What was it? The correct answer is 15 passes. Keep watching. But did you see the gorilla? <laughs> How many of you saw the gorilla? Who hadn't seen it before? How many of you did not see the gorilla? When they did that test, they found out that over 50% that over of people never saw the gorilla the first time they saw it. And if you're cocky and you think, oh, I figured it out, I saw it. They did a second one a few years ago. Go online, find it, and you'll see, and that one will teach you another lesson. Because sometimes we see what we're focused on. We see what we want to see, and we miss something else that is right there hiding in plain sight. And God does that. This is what Jesus said about, this is the answer. This is why I speak to them in parables. Though seeing they do not see, though hearing they do not hear, in them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. You'll be ever hearing, never understanding. You'll be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ear, ear, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes. Because they see, and your ears, because they hear. I want to give you two word pictures to think about, about the, what, what the prophets were doing and why they were doing it. And this is a huge amount of scripture, so just see if this helps you at all. One, what the, first, the first word picture is to think about standing on a hilltop, and you look across and you see a number of other hilltops. There's valleys and hilltops, but, but, but what God does is he points and says, I want to show you what's coming. And on various hilltops, you see pictures of something that's coming. So he says, that is going to happen. But what, what we don't see is you don't see the distance between the valleys. You don't see how far it is or how high the peaks are. All you see is a series of, of things going on. And you say, that's coming. God doesn't care, doesn't want you to try to figure out how long it is between each one, how what the details are each, where they're all happening. He just wants you to see the big picture. Look across the hilltops, and you'll get an accurate picture of what's coming. It's not the distance. It's not all the details. It's just the key assurances of the inevitabilities. Now, here's, here's the picture that's helping me best. Here's what the prophets were there, there to do. Remember we said God has a plan for what his kingdom is supposed to look like, the way he originally created it to be, where he's going with it. The prophets were given a blueprint. The blueprint was a picture of this is the final plan. This is what the kingdom is going to look like. And what the prophet's role was, was to take that blueprint and hold it up against the actual picture of what you currently see. When they do that, then they say, notice the difference for two reasons. One is to point out the differences that need to change right now. 
And the second is to show you what it's inevitably supposed to be. We were getting a, a church building built, and we, there were blueprints all over the place, and we were looking and saying, how's this going? And, and the crew was there working, and we looked and said, well, that's weird. That door that goes from the lobby to the auditorium, there's supposed to be a ramp going up to that. Why is that door positioned there? And isn't it supposed to be over there? And all the, all the subcontractors said, oh, no, no, they were following the plans. So what they did was they took the blueprint and they held it up. And they go, yeah, no, that's wrong. <laughs> that needs to change. The, the prophets held, held up a, the blueprint said, this is the picture. Can you see the way it's supposed to be? Now, compare that to the reality. Can you see the difference? Which is better, A or B? One or two? And people would look at it and say, oh my goodness, that's different. And then they'd say, right, here's what you need to change. Here's what we need to change right now. There was a right now purpose to the prophecies. Change something right now. Repent now. Work on your life right now. See what God needs to transform right now. At the same time, he's, they're saying, and take a look what it's going to look like. That's what the prophecy is there for. The current picture and the design. Notice the difference. So the purpose of the prophecy is, just look back with me at Zechariah 1. Look at verse 16. Here's the hint of what God says. Therefore, this is what the Lord says. I will return to Jerusalem with mercy, and there my house will be rebuilt, and the measuring line will be stretched out over all Jerusalem, declares the Lord Almighty. Proclaim further, this is what the Lord Almighty says. My towns will again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion and choose Jerusalem. The purpose of the prophecies was to remind them of the plan. Without giving them all the details, without spelling out exactly or how or, or when, it was to remind them of the plan, to call them to adjust to the plan, and to reinforce hope. Hope in the plan until it was completed. Can I just pause and say this? We've been talking about this. Do you need a dose of hope right now? Have the circumstances right now in your life turned in such a way that you feel like the picture of what you thought God was going to do, where he's headed, his good in your life, you've kind of lost it? There's some of us in the room who probably are dealing with a level of disappointment and pain and despair, and you say, I don't see this changing. I don't see this ending. It's not getting any better. I feel like the, the picture is gone. Some of us need some hope. God will show you the final picture to remind us. Oh, that it's going somewhere. This is not the end of the story. And the situation that you're struggling with right now, there may be some factors that are going to be different than you thought they would be. But this is not the end of the story. Hear it again. There is a good God who is in control. And he will prevail. He will show you that picture so that he says, have hope until that time, and watch what I do to bring it about. Now, I'm just going to fly through this next part because, and I'm not going to do this justice at all because Zechariah is a long book with lots of details and lots of stuff we could camp in. But there's an overview that we could just paint. I'm going to reference these passages if you want. You can write them down, look at them later. They're all, all in the book of Ze Zechariah. But, but he, when he paints the picture, the overview of the prophecies, he says, remember the one story. Remember where this is going. God, is re he, he's made, he made a kingdom, and he's going to restore his kingdom. So let's 
be reminded of that. And when he describes what that's going to look like, like that, he says, here's some of the, what's going to happen in, in the center of God's kingdom. It's going to be a, 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 a capital. He says, first of all, there, there are no walls. Zechariah 2, 1 to 5. Which means there's no limits to it. It won't need protection anymore. It won't need boundaries anymore. It's going to be a place that overflows and extends into the whole world. It's going to be a place where all nations have equal access. Not just the Jews, even the mortal enemies. Zechariah 8, he talks about this, verses 20 to 23. That people are going to come from every tribe, every nation, every tongue. You ever heard that phrase used before? Maybe you heard it here, Philippians 2. Therefore God exalted him, Christ, the Son of God, the King, to the highest place, gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In the book of Revelation, when the picture is given even more fully, it says, after this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one would count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes, were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne. See the references to his kingdom? And to his Lamb, the Son of God who paid the price of redemption so people could come, be forgiven, and be there. All nations would be there. All aspects of life will be centered there. No needs would be left unmet. Zechariah 10.4 talks about that. Zechariah 14.3 and 4 talks about that. Every threat will be eliminated. You remember in the book of Revelation, it says there's no more death or dying, tears, all those things. Are, that's referring to the state of this kingdom, sometimes called the eternal state. But it's a real kingdom with real people who, who inhabit it. Who are, who are made perfect and whole and, and glorified by God in glorified bodies, but all the threats will be eliminated. So that in, you get to chapter 11. If you read this, you're going to see all kinds of stuff that's lined up against the enemies of God's kingdom. All those external places that wanted to annihilate the, the children of Israel and said, you know those threats you're constantly lived under? Constantly feeling the pressures of? Not a single one's going to remain. It's been 70 years. They've been under the oppression of hand of a foreign army it's a vivid picture for them all the threats will be eliminated and in Zechariah 14 you know look at Zechariah 14 with me I'll just just want you to see this verses 8 and 9 on that day living water will flow out of from Jerusalem half to the eastern sea half to the western in summer and in winter the Lord and that word for the Lord is Yahweh the one who is will be king over the whole earth get that the whole earth. On that day there will be one Yahweh, one Lord, and his name, the only name, where the one true rightful king will be enthroned and glorified. He will seal this. He will secure it. He will make it a per- permanent condition. Look at verse 11 of that same chapter. It will, it will be inhabited. Never again will it be destroyed. Jerusalem will be secure. So he paints this picture, says that's where it's going. It's getting there. But in the meantime... There's a couple lessons to learn when you hold up the blueprint. Let me just spend the rest of our time just kind of help guiding us through thinking about this. And this is where we talk about the importance of backing the right horse. Because a whole lot of people have decisions to make about who is going to finally prevail, who's going to finally win this thing, where is it all going? And people make decisions based on their own desires and what the culture says and what is popular and, and what... What is politically correct? 
But God's going to make this clear. He says there's, there's a cost to be paid if you don't, that's coming if you don't back the right horse. See, right now we live in a, in a world that it, where people are increasingly emboldened to make demands that defy that anybody tell them there's one right way. That there's a, there's, a, a, there's a design for all human beings and we're supposed to function within that and it's the right way. Don't you dare tell me that I can't choose the way I function. You know what we call that? We call that bullying when people try to do that. I've got an identity. I've got a lifestyle. Don't you affirm what, I'm, what I want to do. I'm going to back the horse of myself. I'm going to back the horse of, of culture and, and what's the norms of my culture. That's I, because absolutes are enslaving, we're told. They're obsolete. When you say you're, you're making the right way, you're forcing me to feel less than full. So we celebrate those who reject standard claims. We almost challenge it, don't we, in our culture? We challenge people to say, you know, you, you just try. Just try to impose your way on me. Just try to, 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 to infer that there's anything wrong with the way I go, that I can't self-govern. And God just seems to be quiet, seems to be silent, just kind of lets it go. People get more and more confident because of that. Doesn't seem like it's costing anybody. Seems like we're making progress. And, but God says, look, you just need to know the challenges leveled against me, they will be accepted. The nations that oppose me, the nations that oppose my, my plan, because remember, he created the land, he created the, the people, he created the line, he created the system, and those who stand opposed to that and insist on something else, it's going to come out badly. It would be wise for them to change direction. He's fair warning. You know, the state of Texas is so proud, they said, you know, it, it became the, the, the state motto. I don't know if it still is, but they voted on this. You know what the state motto of Texas was, at least for a while? Or, or at least it was the, uh, it was the, the motto that they used for, the, for all their uh, tourists. Don't mess with Texas. Don't mess with Texas. Everything's bigger in Texas. They got the bigger guns. They got the bigger horses. They got the bigger people. Don't mess with Texas. You want a state, go to Texas. Don't mess with Texas. What the prophet said is, yeah, don't mess with Yahweh. Even if he's quiet for a while. Even if it seems like you're getting away with it. Fair warning, you don't want to mess with the one true God. Just, if, just page back to Zechariah 9. This is, start with verse 1. The word of the Lord is against the land of Hadrach and will rest on Damascus for the eyes of men and all the tribes of Israel are on the Lord. And he goes on and lists these other places that, that, that they've, they've built strongholds and they've heaped up silver and dust. It says, but verse 4 says, but the Lord will take away her possessions and destroy her power on the sea. She'll be consumed by fire. Ashkelon will see it in fear. Gaza will write, these are Palestinian cities, will, will, uh, will writhe in agony. I mean, this is, this is tough talk, isn't it? Pretty intense. Gaza will lose her king. Ashkelon will be deserted. Foreigners will occupy Ashdod. Verse 7, I will take the blood from their mouths and forbidden food from between their teeth. Those who are left will belong to our God, become leaders in Judah. Verse 8 says, I will defend my house against marauding forces. Never again will an oppressor overrun my people. For now, I am keeping watch. 
Verse 9, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. See, your king comes. God says that day is coming. You don't want to be on the wrong side of history. You heard that phrase? Gets used a lot. Don't be on the wrong side of history. Don't be on the wrong side of World War II and fascism. It, I'm Italian. We, we, did not, we do not look good from World War II. You don't want to be on the wrong side of the slavery issue and racial segregation. You don't, you don't want to be on the wrong side of apartheid. But not, no, no place, no issue is bigger than this one. Man, you don't want to be on the wrong side of the God of Israel because he is the God of the world. He is your God. He's the only one who we will answer to. He will, he, he will establish that. Get that one right. Because God says, you need to understand the unfathomable benefit you get by getting that right. That there, is, there are unbelievable levels of grace and reward and provision and care, connection and love that are given to those who simply bow to the right king who surrender their rights and their lives and say, your way is right, I will follow your way, I I surrender to your provision. See, you hear all that strong talk, but there's one thing that God has always wanted. He's wanted it then, and can I say this? He wants it now from you. He wants relationship. He wants a love based connection with you. He wants you to know him. He wants to do life together. He wants you to, be, he wants to bless. He wants the, the be, you to benefit from having you rightfully positioned in his life. He says, you've probably heard this verse before in Zechariah 4, 6. This one gets quoted quote a lot. It says it's to Zerubbabel. He said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit. You heard that phrase? It comes from this. Says the Lord Almighty. Getting right, getting your life right does not come by your might or your power. You don't earn enough money or get your life on track or get into the right rehab or whatever it might be and then set your course and you get it right. No, it's not by might. It's not by power. It's by my spirit. You surrender to God's spirit and you say, I just placed myself under your mercy. And God says, ah, oh, man, I can't believe. You're not going to believe how good it gets. I cannot wait to pour relationship in you. Let's do this life together. And then it comes down to the great garment exchange. Look, look at chapter 3. I really want you to see this because there's this picture that gets set. Chapter 3, verse 1. He showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord. Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. That's such a vivid picture of your life and mine, by the way. Here we are. We got an enemy who says, what a mess. What a mess. Look, look what, a, what a failure. What What ugliness. The Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you. That's him. I'm doing it. Third person. Man, he's going third person on him. That's just awesome. The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? That could be you. I mean, about to be consumed, but it's snatched from the fire. And then he uses this picture. Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. The angel said to those who were standing before him, 
take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, see, I have taken away your sin, and I will put rich garments on you. Then I said, put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him while the angel of the Lord stood by. There's this exchange. God says, I'm going to do this for you. I'm going to take the dirty filthiness of yourself. I'm going to take, I'm going to exchange coats with you. I will wear that. And I'm going to give you something that is spotless and clean. Does that remind you of any pictures that you hear in the Bible? Like what Isaiah said, I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation, arrayed me in a robe of righteousness. The Apostle Paul in the book of Romans will use a similar phrase, and he'll say, we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. I, I've been made clean. God takes on my filth. And, and it just look, look at this. Look at how he says it. Look at, skip down to verse 8. Listen, O high priest Joshua, and your associates seated before you, who, who, who are men symbolic of things to come. I am going to bring my servant the branch. See the stone I've set in front of Joshua? There's seven eyes on that stone. And I will engrave an inscription on it, says the Lord Almighty. And here's the part I want you to see. I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. In a single day. Millennia worth of sin was paid for and removed in a single day. You know when that day was. The day a spotless lamb went to the cross, sacrificed his life, and an eternal being took on eternal amounts of sin and filth and punishment. Yours, mine, took it on himself, bowed under the weight of that, died under the weight of it, and then rose from the grave to conquer it, and it's paid for. In a single day, it would happen. The call gets very simple. Go back to the beginning. This is the last verse I'll show you. Zechariah 1. Verses 2 and 3. The Lord was very angry with your forefathers. Therefore, tell the people, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Return to me, declares the Lord Almighty, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. It all comes down to a very simple decision. God says, just return to me. I'm not going to ask you to explain yourself. I'm not going to put you through a whole lot of stuff to make get up to me. I'm not going to ask you to prove yourself to me. If you just return to me, I will return to you. I give you free access. I'm taking care of all of this so that my kingdom can look the way I intended and it starts with your heart. That call has been extended to those people, and it is extended, can I say it this way, it, to this, this morning in this very room. God, by His Spirit, has worked and called us together, I believe, for a purpose. For some of us, it's to get encouraged by a hope that says, this is going some, somewhere. But for other of us, this is that day. This is the day where we say, it is time for me to come home. It is time for me to try to stop cleaning up my own act. It's time for me to stop running from him. I have a God who unbelievably is willing to throw his arms open and just say, this is all it takes. Just return to me, and I will return to you. I will embrace you. I will forgive you. I, we will walk the road toward what, what we've intended together. It won't be easy. It won't, it, it, we've got some ways to go. But I'm returning. I want to ask you today. Same question. We, 
Some of us really say, boy, it would be nice if God would get on with what he's doing, wouldn't it? It would sure be nice if he would just take care of this and get it over with, that his kingdom would function the way it's supposed to. And then God would turn simply to us and says, okay, are you ready? Are you, are you willing to bow to the rightful king? Are you willing to embrace his son and his payment for your sin? Are you ready? To, will you come home? In a minute, I'm going to pray, and I'm going to just invite you to think about this. And I'm going to guess that most of the people in the room, you've crossed the line of faith, and you've said, I am trusting Jesus Christ and his payment for my sins to, pay, to, to, to restore me to God. But I'm going to guess there's some in this room, maybe people think that's true, or maybe you're just new to this. That invitation and God's arrangement of his world might lead to this moment to say, in a single day, I will remedy your situation. I'm going to ask you, all it takes is for you in your heart to return to him. So would you bow your head with me? And if you, if you know him, maybe you've drifted from him, maybe you just need to do some business with him and get reset yourself to say you're my king and there's some things I want to, I, I'm holding up the blueprint of my life the way it's supposed to be and there's some things out of whack and God, I want to correct it. I'm asking you, would you just do business with him right now about that? While that's happening, if I want to invite you specifically, if today you're not sure that you've ever invited the pure one, the Son of God, to take off his robe of righteousness and, and hand it to you and then take on your robe of, of sin and filth and dirt. Very easily, very simply, right now, from a heart of surrender, you could say something like him quietly where you are. Jesus, I need you. I need your forgiveness. I need your direction in my life. Right now, I turn from my sin. I believe you died for them on the cross. And I receive freely your gift of righteousness, of cleansing. Come into my life. Make me clean. And do your work in my future. If you call out to him in some way like that, God says in a single day, in a single moment, he gives you. He, he returns to you. Don't leave this place before you tell somebody else. That's what I did. That was me today. My life is new because of him. God, thank you that your kingdom is coming. It will never end. It will be worth it. In the meantime, Help us to be able to see the contrast of what it's intended to be from what it is in our current lives. Help us willingly make the adjustments to follow you, obey you, and serve you, trust you, and accomplish your purpose until the day when we see that it's finished. We stand in that wallless city and we celebrate forever because you have brought it to pass for the world and in our lives. Accept our worship.